0: the mic is back!
1: Okay, so today we're going to be talking about climate change and climate justice. And so we have two guest speakers with us and a creative of color, her name is Emin. So why don't we just ask our guests to introduce themselves real quick.
2: (laughs) I'm Dhruv Patke, I'm from the Climate Action Movement. I go by He, Him, His. Um, I'm an Indian American student on campus here. I'm a junior.
0: Hi, I'm Eric Anderson, and I'm an environmental engineering major. I also go by he, him, his. I am an African-American student on campus, and I'm a junior as well. So yeah.
3: Awesome. Okay.
1: So with that, we have our episode on climate justice. So stay tuned for a lot of information about the Amazon activists that are both non-indigenous and indigenous, and questions about how the climate change is going to affect everyone. So we're gonna introduce our creative of color for the week. Her name is Emin and she's gonna talk about her work.
4: Hey guys. Yeah, my name's Emin. I'm currently a student at the School of Public Health doing my masters. And I am a master student by day, illustrator by night, I guess. I've been doing art all my life, but I recently just like kind of got into the business mindset maybe a year and a half ago. And it's more of like a personal journey for me, not necessarily like a way to just make money because I'm trying out new things, I'm meeting new people, I'm like discovering things about myself that i didn't really necessarily know before like also pushing myself like i hate driving and I, <laughs> like i absolutely hate driving on the highway and stuff like that and like i have to drive and travel for things now and yeah it's like small achievements that kind of are coming from this whole experience yeah so i guess it's just trying to see how far i can get with it honestly like i don't see it as a career i don't see it as like something i take too seriously but at the same time i do does that make sense i like i want to push myself but at the same time i'm trying not to take it too seriously someone copies my stuff it's not a big deal I'm and, and like in other words I'm like flattered or I'm I'm happy that they're trying to like find some sort of creative outlet or energy and they're putting it out there I don't know it's just it's more informal for me
1: what does creating mean to you
4: I honestly that's a tough question um I think it's there's no way to explain it than just being creative honestly you're doing something that is not necessarily a hobby but something that expresses an emotion or a feeling or an idea in a way that just visually or phonetically or like you like it's just like appealing to consume or something that's made to consume from others and by yourself
3: and how do you think your art specifically i mean i've seen it but how does it um for you how does it relate to your community or other communities of color
4: Um, I think like many other artists on Instagram, it's kind of trying to navigate or make connections between something that you're part of, but not a part of. So like growing up in America, you're not considered Pakistani, but you're not considered Pakistani by people back home, you know? So it's finding that middle ground, that kind of liminal space of being. And like for me, I do it through humor, but also, like, I'm interested in doing something, some things more serious, some things more informative, but it's mostly just trying to have a visual reputation, representation of that liminal space.
1: What's your favorite piece of artwork you've created?
4: I don't think I've created it yet. Okay. I think, (laughs) I think, like... Sometimes I love what I do, and then sometimes I think to myself, like, this isn't the kind of stuff that I would consume if it was someone else. Mm-hmm. So I'm trying to get to that point. I'm trying to get to that point where it's like, I would buy this. I would look at this at an art museum, you know, or, or a gallery, not an art museum. Like, as if I'm not going to be in the Smithsonian, maybe the MoMA, <laughs> but um, um, yeah, something that I would consume as an individual.
1: Cool. then feel free to do a little shameless plug so your handle, anything that people
4: can follow you okay, on okay. Um, so you can follow me on Instagram at eminjohn, E-M-M-E-N J-A-A-N my website's also eminjohn.com and through that you can there's links to my store, there's links to my um, artwork, stuff that I've been a part of, some stuff that I've been featured on, so this will definitely make the list <laughs> um, but yeah, that's where you can find me
1: going to do a brief history of the Amazon before we get into everything, because as you know, the Amazon is burning, and I'm pretty sure it's still burning right now. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And the date is September uh, 29th, and I'm not sure how many days it's been burning, but it's like a good amount of time to care about it. Mm -hmm. Um, So basically, the rubber boom happened in the 1879 to 1913 is where Charles Goodyear invented a way to take rubber from trees and make it resistant. But then in 1900s, rubber was Brazil's second most important product, and it was 24% of the exports. So around 60 years of this Amazon was the world supplier and then it was beat by Asian competitors by 1913 but then in 1920s almost 8 million hectares of rainforest were destroyed so the world's increasing demand for timber and agricultural expansion for production of crops and meat happened then Um, and then there was a lot of cattle ranching from the 1950s to the 1980s and then Brazil became from the largest rubber producer to the largest exporter of beef around the world um, there was a lot of government influence in the 1960s, and then the new government subsidizes to encourage cattle ranching, tax exemptions, <laughs> programs for large beef-producing farms. Um, and then in 1977, 72% of investments in cattle in Brazil were form of incentives, loans, and subsidies. So basically, people were going into um, cattle ranching, and this has kind of started burning the Amazon to create more land. Um, so the problem is not just that clearing the forest, it's that all the nutrients from the soil have been depleted, so there's no use for the land anymore, um, and it becomes abandoned. Um, and it takes about like five to eight years to search for new land and for more nutrient-rich soil. Uh, and there's this book called Limits to Growth that showed that the rainforests were not a sustainable resource. Um, and then this book kind of spurred this climate change movement and activism against it. Um, then there was a trans-Amazonian highway in the 1970s, and it built 200, 2,485 highways through the Amazon to connect Brazil's growing farming and cattle breeding economy. So there was a cutting of a lot of trees and increased access throughout the Amazon. Um, and then this kind of opened up untouched lands and spread diseases uh, and large um, movements to bring AIDS and and HIV, malaria, and then because of deforestation, that went from 5% to 12%. Um, and then between 1991 and 1994, 80% of the deforestation in the Amazon was within 50 kilometer of highways. So now there's a 278% increase in deforestation in July compared to last year, so over two times the amount of deforestation, almost three times the amount. Um, And deforestation and drought is the primary driver um, behind these fires. Um, So basically, there is an erosion of indigenous land rights and clearing the land for Cattle ranching and soy production and other industrial purposes. There are about 305 tribes living in Brazil today, and the government recognized 690 territories, and all of them live in the Amazon.
3: Whew! Let's <laughs> take a breath.
1: <laughs> okay, so there's your history of the Amazon, and we'll talk more about that later. And especially we're gonna touch on the indigenous folks who are living in these people uh, in this land um, and how their land is being taken away and they're kind of advocating for it. So kind of going along activism, we're gonna talk about the climate change activists that are like out there in the world right now
3: yeah so right now the person who's been getting a lot of press lately is greta thunberg Uh, she's a 16 year old climate activist from sweden and a couple weeks ago she was at the un's climate action summit in uh, new york city and she said People are suffering, people are dying, entire ecosystems are collapsing. We are at the begin- beginning of a mass extinction, and all you can talk about is money and fairy tales of eternal economic growth. And she said that to the UN General Assembly. That's been all over. But some activists who aren't getting as much shine, who are also very um, heavy in the community, are Autumn Peltier, and she is Canadian water activist, and is a member of the WIC, Wee Mekong uh, First Nation, and she's been, she's been fighting for clean water since she was a years old and right now she is uh the water commissioner and represents 40 first nation communities around canada across canada excuse me and then also right in our backyard um maury who's also better known as little miss flint she's been also fighting for flint's ongoing writer crisis um when she was eight she wrote a, a letter to president Bama, asking him if he would come to meet with her and others in her community who were affected by the contaminated water. And um, now she works with an organization called Pack Your Back to help over 25,000 children with donations for everything from school to clean water supplies. Um, but yeah, so those are two activists uh, doing work that aren't, aren't given as much light as like Greta's been given right now. So we wanted to bring them to light. What
1: is climate justice?
2: Yeah, Uh, climate justice is this idea that um, uh, climate change and our current environmental issues are all, and many issues around the world and uh, that intersect each other in many different ways are all rooted in colonialism, and that to be a, to be able to solve our current climate crisis, we need to tackle it as intersectional of a manner as possible. What that means, especially for mo- like for modern environmentalism, which is predominantly white, predominantly affluent, gen and generally espouses solutions that are only accessible to those who are also white and affluent. It means that this movement needs to be open to all different types of people of from all different types of backgrounds to be able to create a solution that is. Je- uh, like equitable and fair to all people across the world
0: yeah i think you hit like all the nails on the head right there uh a lot of a lot of climate activists when you think of it are typically affluent like white people so like the voices of the people who would be hit by this first so like people of low, lower socioeconomic like backgrounds and people who are of different races um in other places their voices aren't necessarily being heard and they're not being included in the decision process so that kind of like messes with how the decisions are being made like they're not necessarily the best decisions for everybody the best decisions for like a small group of people that have also been making the decisions that got us to this point in the first place so yeah
1: yeah that kind of goes into like who is being hurt and why and I think you just answered that but do you mind going a little bit deeper into it
2: um sure uh so like if you if you look at natural disasters over the last like decade or so and farther back um, not all of those are, at, are can be like directly at, directly attributed to climate change and to like the changing environment, but the like we do know that as um, uh, the we do know that as like the the earth warms as the climate changes, natural like natural disasters and things of the of the like are going to become more and more prevalent. Um, but like if you look at like Hurricane Katrina or if you look at the recent Hurricane Hurricane Dorian mm-hmm. that hit yeah. the Bahamas, um, like you see these like people like generally people of color and people from uh, people with impoverished backgrounds are the ones who are like they have a they have a tougher time like rebuilding because they don't uh, like they don't have the same resources that and the same privilege that um the that like those who are making the decisions have um and then like non-natural disaster related like um i guess this is still like a natural disaster but like you can see like islands and the uh and like Polynesia and Micronesia like going under and indigenous people from there and like people who live there are losing their homes.
0: Yeah. <laughs> in addition to that, I guess people who are of higher economic standing, if they are living in those areas, when things start to get worse, they'll be able to move out because they have the resources to do that. But the people who don't will be left behind and will be kind of left to suffer in that kind of like microcosm of disasters continuously hitting like more often, being stronger. So that also contributes to it because like property values in those areas are going down so people don't necessarily want to buy in that because like property values are like starting to take climate change into a, like account because it's an actual thing so um i guess just like those people who live there not being able to leave and then some people being able to leave because they have the resources mm-hmm. and that's also like another thing that plays into who's being hurt by climate change
3: mm-hmm. and then kind of going off of that like who's been hurt how can we help the people who are kind of like going through this um, or in these areas where, like you said, people who have higher, are of a higher social class can move out and things like that. What about the people who can't move out who are like stuck when things like Hurricane Dorian happen and things like that? What What can we do to kind of like aid them in this?
0: I think that goes back to it kind of being an intersectional issue. So it's like, if housing was more affordable in other places, then people would be able to move out of those areas. But since it's not typically that affordable, they can't, so that's one of the potential solutions is affordable housing could really help people like kind of like leave those areas and not have to deal with the disasters that come along with climate change. Um, That's the one I thought of, do you have any? Um,
2: I guess this is more of like a really big picture, not like what can an individual person do, but like systematically um, this idea of decolonization, Um, because like the reason that we are here where we are right now, like the the reason why we here on the University of Michigan campus, we, who are uh, like the privileged people of America, of the, of the global north, are here where they are right now, is off the backs of, the, of those who have been oppressed for mm-hmm. millennia mm-hmm. Like, to help the people, like the people who are, being, who are being most adversely affected. We need to come to the general, accept- well, like, we need to come to the general acceptance that the, uh, that as a, like, as a society, we can't continue to function in the same manner that we function mm-hmm. because that continues to be off the backs of these people. And we can apply band aid solutions all we want and act like we're trying to help, but that won't. But that like that doesn't get rid of the systematic like the systematic issues that will continue to hurt these people
1: right and i, I think our like country too the u.s is really f- notorious for doing patchwork solutions or like these, yeah. like, these yeah. blanket solutions like like even like the affordable care act is basically a patchwork solution mm-hmm. to like healthcare. Yeah. so how do we even like how do we even take all of these systematic things and reduce it how do we yeah. even change it from the start
3: are we saying, like, kind of going back off of that, when you said that, I was like, oh, are we saying, like, let's, or, like, a revolt to the system, but, like, how, like, realistic, like, how how can we make systematic change without, like, just fucking up the entire, you know what I'm saying? Like, mm-hmm. I, I'm a proponent of, like, let's fuck up the entire system, but, like, <laughs> <laughs> like for right now, like... I, what what does that look like i guess that's
0: something that. i feel like i grapple with a lot as an engineering major because so well, like when i was younger i used to think that technology was like the solution for everything right but going through my college career and being on project teams i realized that we have like the tech like we have the tech for a lot of stuff like carbon sequestration all that it's just like systematically you can't implement it because it's either too expensive it's not subsidized enough and then also the fact that a lot of those issues are really polarized in our country so there's people who are just completely against it Yeah, even if it's like a long-term thing um that also kind of goes against it and then also the fact that humans are kind of short-term creatures because people like to deal with a problem that's right in front of them Mm -hmm. and that they can see but climate change is kind of like a long-spanning problem so it's harder for it's harder for us to get systematic change to deal with climate change just because I guess now is not super long-term anymore, but previously it would have been a longer timeline so people were like not thinking about that or they were thinking about the here and now. So those are things like profits, other things that corporations can gain, like votes for politicians, all that. Mm -hmm. So those are like short-term things that they can focus on. But the fact that climate change is a long-change issue is what's made it so difficult to fight. Um, I think making little changes now systematically could potentially help just because... And maybe that'll start to happen because now climate change is like a forefront issue. Like it's like a here and now type thing. And a lot of people are waking up to that. So I think that could potentially drive change.
2: Um, And then, uh, yeah, as far as like things that we can do here and now, um, I think continuous advocacy for, for like for solutions for policy that have been pushed. Um, Like I know specifically in uh, like having to do with like water contamination, water policy, indigenous people have had their water rights, um, like infringed upon over mm-hmm. and over again, and they've been pushing for policy over and over again, and that has somehow in the mainstream of environmentalism been separated from climate change, mm-hmm. um not really sure how, but like continu- <laughs> like but like continuous advocacy and allyship i guess for these people who've been like who've been who've been doing like who've been fighting for so long mm-hmm. um, and then I guess like just speaking to technology like technology will not be our, like, our savior. Um, Preach. Yeah, just, like, just, uh,
3: <laughs> like... Hallelujah.
2: I feel like we gave you a lot of problems and not a lot of solutions there, but... <laughs> yeah, <laughs> sorry about that.
1: Um, yeah, so I guess that kind of goes into, like, yeah. the inactiveness that the U.S. is playing in this, especially mm-hmm. with the Paris Treaty. Mm-hmm. Um, so, do you guys I just, just want to talk about that?
2: <laughs> um, Sure. Like, uh, <laughs> so... I'm like I'm not an expert on the Paris Treaty. I don't know its text that well. But I do know that like US policy um the like in the in the fight against like, like in the fight against climate change needs to be centered around like uh, around like, de- like decreasing it's uh, decreasing the US's emissions and the US uh, but at the same time decreasing the US's exploitation mm-hmm. outside the outside its borders because the US and a lot of um, "Quote unquote Western countries, um, they uh, like uh, one of their major methods of decreasing, like uh, decreasing their carbon footprint, is to export their footprint to countries in like Southeast Asia, Africa, um, places uh, places with like not as strict environmental regulations and that are not as as strictly bound by the Paris treaties. Mm-hmm. Um, and what that ultimately means is that." the US, the EU, countries like that, they look good. Or maybe not the US because we backed out of the Paris Treaty. But, yeah. <laughs> yeah. but EU countries end up looking good for their um like for their emission cuts, for their uh for the for them being green.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: But ultimately this way of life and this way of exploitation is still upheld.
3: Um
1: yeah, so um Roshiko is just bringing up how the U.S. has historically backed out of treaties, because developing nations wouldn't have had to uphold the same standards as us, and then uh, the, historically the Kyoto Protocol is the biggest example. Um, and then now, so these are all Roshiko's words, but she lost her voice, so I'm taking say it for her. Um, even with the Paris agreements being in place by other countries, only Portugal is on track to meet the goal. Um, so I guess like... It's kind of hip, hypocritical for us to hold this standard for every country to do well when we're kind of like
3: yeah.
1: doing mm. the most, like in like exp, like putting out the most carbon dioxide in the world and then all mm-hmm. these like third world and developing countries are facing the worst of it and we can just like kind of pretend it's not happening. Yeah. Um,
0: yeah, so the the Paris Climate Agreement, I think, was them agreeing to limit their carbon emissions so that we could stop the temperature from raising, I think, what was it, two degrees Celsius or something like that. Cause that's when
2: originally 1.5,
0: 1.5. Yeah. And cause that's when a lot of just bad stuff happens essentially. Like a lot of stuff changes. Um, America, not the U S not being in that agreement is a really big issue because even though America like tends to export our footprint and we do that a lot. Um, it's kind of like a lot of like, um, like the U S is kind of like an example kind of, uh, Not necessarily like in the best ways all the time. Um, But if America like actually like strives to make changes to itself, Mm -hmm. I feel like in the Paris Agreement, then other countries would probably follow or like try and at least do the same. But like since America backed out, other countries were like, oh,
3: we're not going to do it. We're like,
0: if America's not doing it, then we're not going to do it. And then, you know, that just like the fact, like international politics are just so complicated between how all the countries, like, view each other and, like, just, it's insane. So, I mean, the fact that we were willing to back out of that agreement just is not, just wasn't a good decision in terms of international politics and just in terms of actual, like, climate, like, driving change because now people are just going to be, like, well, the people who are putting out the most emissions don't want to change, so why should we do anything? And, you know, yeah. So it's, it's honestly a huge, really huge issue that the u.s is being inactive in this
1: that kind of segues into our next question which is like social media activism when you're like here in the united states and you're in a privileged area and you're not really feeling the direct consequences of climate change that are as like as bad as around the world Mm -hmm. um how much can we do from here when we're so far away from a lot of the worst but also not so far away
0: um I i think we can do i i feel like we can do a lot, but I feel like social media isn't used to, like, its full extent of, like, mm-hmm. the full power it could have. Because it's kind of trendy to be, like, oh, the Amazon's burning. Let me change my profile picture to, like, whatever color. Yeah. or and like.
1: I didn't explicitly say before, but the Amazon is intentionally burning. Yeah, yeah. And it has, like, been burning because mm-hmm. it's not able to, like, revive itself because mm-hmm. it's been intentionally burning. Yeah. I don't think I made that clear in my intro.
3: Yeah. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> but... Yeah, so people like, I guess, changing their, I guess, political profile pictures, like their profile pictures on social media, and being like, oh, look, I'm woke, I care about these issues. (laughs) So on one hand, it's like, okay, awareness, but at the same time, in a society like the US, we all kind of know it's happening just because of the way our news cycle works. And like, the access that a lot of us have to like phones and computers and TVs and whatever. So I feel like, change has to go deeper than actually changing your profile pic or like tweeting on twitter or something Mm -hmm. or those fake Mm -hmm. accounts that pop up every time something's happening that's like hey if you follow us we'll We'll do this yeah and they don't actually have any pull or anything um yeah so it's like i don't know so like for example like companies right when companies are doing things consumers can exercise their power with their like their money and Mm -hmm. not buy things from that company um but the government, it's a little bit trickier because you can't, like, you can protest the government all you want, but the people who are in office were ele- typically elected mm-hmm. by people who have similar views. Mm-hmm. So unless you can change the views of those people or, like, right. change the kind of area that, and then change who's in office the next time. So, like, the government is a really difficult entity to change, honestly, and I feel like that, I feel like it'll change more as, like, people that are like already start taking positions and stuff yeah. like yeah. later on, but that's probably too late. Yeah. So I guess trying to figure out how to actually drive systematic change with the government is a really big issue. Yeah. Um yeah, so like as
2: far as social media's place in in activism, I think social media is a great way for the word to get out, especially because of a generally biased news cycle.
4: Mm-hmm.
2: Um I know that I only found out about the Amazon burning because I saw something on Instagram mm-hmm. um, that being said I don't believe that changing your profile picture or posting something on Instagram or Facebook or whatever is truly a form of impactful activism mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I like I think that like basically like, basically it comes down it comes down to like privilege and people's ability to be uh, to be activists Mm-hmm. as well as a, like as well as like how the barrier the barrier of entry to activism has dropped like pretty steeply because mm-hmm. of social media. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So like when that barrier of entry is so low, people are willing to do the absolute least yeah. that they can do mm-hmm. the to pro, to, like, to protest something. <laughs> right, right. To, right. To, yeah. yeah. The, like the very bare minimum to uh, like just to like just to show that they care about something and then to continue on with their lives.
3: Yeah. I know privilege has been, like, a key topic in the last, I don't know, couple years, but I guess what I'm hearing is, like, using your privilege in an active form instead of just being, like, all right, let me share Amazon, let me Mm -hmm. share whatever, like, natural disaster is going on, but the idea Mm -hmm. of, like, mobilizing your privilege um, and, like, trying to use it to actually create systematic change, and, like, some people, like you said, don't have that privilege to actually do that.
2: Yeah, so, like... I, like, I guess, like, if you, like, if you have that, if you have that privilege, if you have the privilege to say, like, if you, like, if you have that privilege to maybe not get arrested in a sit-in or to not, like, uh, um to be able to, like, skip work or it's, like, to be able to take a day off from work because you are a salaried employee. Or also a, money. That's yeah, you. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, if you, like, if you have, like, if you have, if you're well enough paid that, like, you can uh, you can afford skipping work one day to go and, like. Sit, to go sit in or to go do something like radical and to not have to worry about feeding your children and to not have to worry about feeding your family mm-hmm. it's about taking like, it's about using that privilege to actually go and help someone else's like to like to like to use that privilege and actually call for systematic change um you know in a manner that's actually going to help somebody else as opposed to doing it for some form of vanity on social right. media
0: I feel that because a lot of the time people like use their privilege as like a shield or like a way to get in closer so that they can feel safe, but they should really be using it as a way to like fight for change instead of like to defend them. Like not saying that defending yourself is a bad thing. Like I guess self-preservation is like something that we all have, but you should be willing to use the privilege that you know that you have that someone else doesn't have in order to try and at least change the system in some sort of way to help those people out. Like, Even if it's only a little bit, like Mm -hmm. a little bit can go a long way, especially like when like little tiny things compound upon each other, and Mm -hmm. so they can like become a big thing. And and also just just a little asterisk, I guess, like this sort of like
2: there's like this like sort of leads into the slippery slope of um, white saviorism. Yeah. So like that like that be (laughs) a like it being understood that those who have privilege should definitely like like it's a. Being privileged and using your privilege to help somebody else does not mean making decisions for somebody else. Mm-hmm. It means that you that ha- like, it means having empathy for the um, having empathy for them and the and like actually like having a conversation, like actually yeah. like understanding somebody else's needs and fighting for those needs
0: in a selfless manner.
3: Mm-hmm
0: being informed is very important
3: yeah
1: Yeah. how do you stay informed with so much social media around that's like probably a lot of misinformation but Mm -hmm. also biased Uh,
0: yeah so yeah so our news cycle is kind of a really weird thing where you have especially in america a lot of the news media like the media outlets are like polarized on one side or the other so like you kind of take your pick on which side you're going to be on in the first place. And then also among those media outlets, none of them are going to cover a full issue for a long period of time. So like, for example, the Amazon burning was like on the news for about like a week and now you like never see anything about it anymore, but it's still burning. So it's like still happening. So it's kind of, you have to really like kind of like get into that issue and try and I guess learn the most you can from like the most different amount of sources that you can Um, or just in general, try and find the most neutral outlet you can find so that you can stay informed because I mean that's just really hard in general but Mm -hmm. I know like I know like personally like
2: how I stay informed is also just like having I guess like like I know like my friend group and the people that I surround myself it's like I have a pretty diverse set of people around me and I know and I know that everybody has like everybody has their special interests and like their and the things that they care about to stay informed about um and i guess like you and utilizing that network to like to be able to learn just like from people around you
1: um, this is kind of like a i don't want to say disruptive question but it's a little different but how can we as individuals make change and how do we like empower and motivate others to want to create change
0: yeah so <laughs> I guess people really, when it comes to climate change, I feel like a lot of people misunderestimate the power of the individual. Um, because, for example, I guess being vegetarian or vegan or whatever you are um, cuts back on a lot of emissions that would come out of like food, for example. So I don't, personally, I don't eat red meat and my goal is to become pescatarian at some point. Um, but it's just that the... The, like, learning about the issues that you're trying to combat and, like, learning about what actually comes from those. So, like, I know that a lot of water and a lot of emissions and a lot of food goes in, like, making, like, a pound of beef or whatever. Mm-hmm. So I made the conscious decision not to do that, not to, like, consume beef anymore. Um And if a lot of people made that decision, it could actually make a large impact. So I feel like part of it is you yourself choosing to make a conscious decision and then the other part is attempting at least to educate other people on the the kind of impact that their decisions have even like the small ones like eating a hamburger right like very few people think oh yeah eating this hamburger is great, c- great. like contributing to climate Why are you
3: looking change at me, Eric? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know I'm just
0: I'm just thinking I'm just I'm just going to like speak it no, out go ahead, but just um uh but yeah the yeah that's just i guess staying informed and like educating others on issues and whatnot so
2: um i feel like i I have a very like i guess different opinion on it um i I, like i I guess I, i applaud people for their individual actions um but i think the idea that it's upon every individual in the world, or in the U.S., or wherever, like I know, I know, like different, like different cultures have different, like diets, I guess. Like mm-hmm. different, different people have different access to, like let's say, cars, public transportation, things like that. There are a lot of people who've been, and there are a lot of people in communities that have been that have systematically lost mm-hmm. access to mm-hmm. a lot of these things, through like via like food deserts, mm-hmm. via losing public transport services to their to their parts of their town or their parts of their city or whatever, um, and don't have the opportunity to move, like to be able to change that lifestyle Mm -hmm. so I really think like I'm I guess I'm very pro 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 protest so like like you like using like using your voice to call for policy change Mm -hmm. um to be like to be able to uh, to be able to afford these opportunities and these rights to like to people who have lost them over the years uh would be like and it's not and it's like not so much about like what each individual does, but the sum of everybody—the like sum of everybody's voices coming together—to mm-hmm. form true change. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. All right. Thank you guys so yes, much. Thanks so much, guys. Um, we appreciate your time. We'll put your info in the bio, so if people want to have questions, they'll probably hit you up or hit us up. Um, cool. Yeah. This is our second episode of the season. Woo-woo, thanks for woo. listening. And next episode will drop next Monday, and it'll be a Latinx Heritage oh. Month episode.
3: Oh. So see you then. Next time on Pass the Mic.